The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Tone Factory recording studios in Las Vegas, the Craft House Brewery, Moonshot.com, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. The band by the name of The Circle is the story of not a one-hit wonder or a two-hit wonder, but the incredible journey that got this mid-60s trio from playing at frat parties to being part of The Beatles' final U.S. tour. The great news is that The Circle, with original lead singer and guitarist Don Daneman, are performing again. And I've got Don joining me right now on the phone to talk about their incredible past. Don, welcome. Hey, Jim. Nice to talk to you. You know, I was a little kid growing up in Wisconsin when the Circle's debut album kind of made it into our house. I had and uh, and still have an older brother and sister. They had very good taste in music, so it sat right alongside the Stones and Beatles and Beach Boys. Well, we were in good company, obviously. Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? Well, I uh, was born in Brooklyn, New York, and we lived there until I was 12 years old. And then we moved to East Chester, New York, which is a suburb of the city. Yeah. Um, and uh, my background in Brooklyn, um, which was really important for me, like, I can give you a very specific moment when like, oh, my God, rock and roll. And that was, it, it would have been probably around 1955, sitting on the back porch in our little house in Brooklyn with my new transistor radio that I had been given as a birthday present. Right. And I'm flipping through the stations. I come upon Alan Freed's original rock and roll show. I believe the station was WINS in New York. Uh, And he's playing rock and roll music, which I had never heard. And I still remember the first song that I heard that it just stopped me cold. It was a song called Story Untold by the Nutmegs. Um, some of your older folks may, may remember that. <laughs> this, was, this is Down and Dirty Doo-Wop. And I just stopped cold and I listened to it all evening, missing some of my favorite television programs because it just so brought me in. And wow. that just made me want to do rock and roll. Um, This is still back in Brooklyn. As a kid, lying in bed on, I guess it would have been Saturday or Sunday night, not sure one, and there was a show called Your Hit Parade. And they would do um, their own versions. They had their own singers and their own band, and they'd do their own versions of contemporary hit songs of the day. And all of a sudden... Out of the blue, they now had to start doing rock and roll songs because, you know, rock and roll was now becoming part of the hit parade. There was this transition period. And I still remember, I don't remember the song, but I remember the feeling. When they did the first rock and roll song, once again, their own artists and their own band, I said to myself, as I heard it, this show is going off the air very soon. Because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because they didn't get it. They didn't know how to do rock and roll. They did it kind of like the the standard sort of stuff that was, you know, preceding rock and roll. 
Right. And, uh, yeah, and I was right. They went off. I think the next year they were off. So when did you, because of this new thing, rock and roll, when did you start picking up an instrument or instruments and start uh, kind of getting into it a bit? Well, I started out with piano lessons, and around, I guess it was the eighth grade, transferred over to guitar. And I remember um, the feeling level of holding a guitar and being so impressed with Elvis as he stood there with his guitar gyrating around. I said, I want to do that. I just, you know, yeah. it, was a, it was a really cool feeling to just have a guitar in hand and and I was just playing by myself at home. I did take some lessons. Never, never like, you know, serious to the point of like major studio guitar work. But yeah, I was getting to be a pretty good guitar player. Uh, a friend who was in a band, the guitar player in the band, his amp broke. And they had a job at the high school that night. And they asked me, hey, you know, because we were friends. Hey, Don, can we borrow your amp? <laughs> you know, for the for the guitar player. And my right. mom, my mom, cool mom, that she she says, Hey Don, why don't you lend them the amp but tell them that um you wanna go and play. When they take breaks, you you're gonna go play. Because I could play by myself. I could, you know, play and sing and I was you know, I knew a lot of contemporary rock songs of the day. And so they said, Yeah, sure, you know, so we go there, here's the amp, here's my guitar, and the band takes its first break. Now, nobody knew that this was going to happen. And they were a band that played pretty much, it was a standard sort of band. Anyway, I get up and I start playing rock and roll songs. And it would have been probably Buddy Holly type, Ever, you know, Everly Brothers, some duo right. songs. You know, of right. course, there's no group there, but it was, you know. Anyway, I started playing, and I remember the look of... Uh, the the folks, they're looking like, wait a minute, what is this? Like, and they it, all of a sudden they realized, oh, it's just another thing playing. Then they got up and started dancing. So it was a real success. It was a real reinforcement. Like, yeah, I can really do this. Then I got into a a trio. Then I would say uh, the next important thing is now I'm a senior. Now this is moving along a little bit. As a senior in high school, in East Chester High School, I started thinking, okay, I'm going to go off to college next year. And I guess if you're a college man, and I was, you know, applying to schools, I ended up at Lafayette, which is where the circle originated. Yeah. Um, and we'll get there. Uh, but I, the thought was, hmm, I guess in order to be a proper intellectual college man, as I was now going to be as a senior in high school thinking about right. this, <laughs> I guess I really have to get into jazz. And so for a bit, I, I kind of didn't listen to the rock station so much. I started listening to jazz, and I did enjoy it. And jazz is great for what it is. Right. So now... Uh, as a freshman at Lafayette College, and this would have been in the fall of 1961. So, get there, and a wonderful thing happened musically. Well, a few, but the first wonderful thing that happened was freshmen at Lafayette could have no contact with fraternities. You had to wait until the 
second semester. So as a first semester freshman, and Lafayette was a big fraternity school, and there were designated party weekends where fraternities would hire bands and have parties. And I still remember the first party weekend not being able to have any contact with fraternities, but walking around the campus, walking by the fraternities who all hired rock bands and hearing rock music coming out of the fraternity houses and thinking, oh, this is great. I can still be a rock and roller and and be here and you know it was it was okay i didn't have to you know so i i left i let my jazz uh interest go at that point so is this the point where you maybe put something up on a bulletin board asking for other guys of similar interest to yours here's what happened and this is what this is this is the next this is where i was going um no there was no bulletin board but there was a freshman mixer one uh one weekend and uh, they had a band at the Freshman Mixer. During a break, when the band took a break, a couple of guys took over the band instruments. I guess they had their own guitars, you know, but what, they'd used the band's drums. Um, and they started playing, and they were playing some of the regular rock songs of the day. And I'm standing there with my friend, a new friend, obviously, that I had just met um, at college. And he, and he knew that I played guitar. And he says, oh, Don, look, these guys are playing. you got to go play with them. So we ran up to my room at uh, the dorm. And he helped me bring down my amp and guitar, which I had brought with me to school. And went in, set up. Hey, guys, can I play? Yeah, sure. Let's see what happens. And that was the magic moment of the beginning of the circle. Now, the circle didn't become the circle till after college, but the beginning of the circle happened that evening when I played um, with uh, eventual circle bandmate Tommy Dawes and eventual circle bandmate um, Earl Pickens, who um, was... He he was... uh, majorly instrumental through college and was semi in the band as the circle, but he was in med school and he was not going to drop out of med school. So he was kind of in and out of the band for a while. Um, But he was there, Marty Freed, and the original drummer, Jim Maiella, dropped out of the band um, in what would have been my junior year and was replaced by Marty Freed, who was the, with the circle all the way through the circle. Right. That's what happened there. But that night, that freshman mixer night, um, and we just played rock stuff, and you know, we we you know we easily did Everly Brothers stuff with two part harmony and some instrumentals. I still remember doing Walk Don't Run, which I knew the lead of, and they were very impressed with that. Great, great. Um, and it's funny, because if I had to play it now, I, I am capable of playing it, but I don't really remember it. I would have to actually work it out again. <laughs> it's been so long. Well, you know, back then, your jazz licks probably helped you out quite a bit, right? Because that's a little more complicated in some cases. Yeah, actually, there was a little bit of jazz technique that I was able to bring to uh, to the band, yeah, that that is actually true. Playing together at this freshman mixer ca- caused great interest in us getting together and having a band. And 
you know, they said, "Wow, we got to do a, let's 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 have a band. This should be a, a, a great thing." And I was reluctant to get into a band as much as I loved music and rock and roll. I was reluctant because I had my high school girlfriend who was still back in East Chester, um, and I wanted you know, on party weekends to be able to bring my girlfriend up. And, and, you know, I didn't want to have to be in a band and not be able to do that. All right, so, um, but they, um, but the the guys asked me, hey, look, why don't we rehearse and let's see what happens. And so we actually did get together during the this uh, fall semester, 1961, fall semester, we got together and we rehearsed and we were kind of getting to be a band, you know, where we 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 could play and you know, we were at a point where we could do a couple of sets worth if we ever got a job. But I still was holding back. You know, we can't really a band yet. And then I am going to give uh I had a uh lot of plus and a minus. And that was over Christmas vacation. My girlfriend got another guy and broke up. We oh, broke up. no. So, oh. I was, and, and I really, I took that pretty hard. I mean, yeah, I, you of know, course. you know, and I actually, I've written this out and I think it's probably on our website. I, I have a diary that uh, is on our website. Anyway, I came back from Christmas vacation and I informed the guys, okay, there's no girlfriend. If you want to have an official band and get a job, go ahead. Earl Pickens, the eventual wonderful <laughs> doctor that he became, and he he's he became a very successful surgeon and actually recently retired. Yeah. Um, and we stay in touch. Um, Earl Pickens kind of took on the business aspects of the band, and he was the keyboard guy. And he got us our first job. And funnily enough, it was not at Lafayette. It was at Lehigh which is was about 12 miles down the road at a fraternity party uh our first job at Lehigh we it was a success we played they all had a good time and that uh got us started and with the, uh, at one point i think it was Tommy that just basically said to me hey don we're going to be called <clears throat> excuse me hey don we're going to be called the rondells spelled r h o n d e l l s and you know, I I couldn't think of anything better. And I thought, yeah, fine, we're the Rondells. And it seemed to be a contemporary name of that time period. So, by the way, uh, that gig that you had at Lehigh, um, do you recall what you guys were paid for that? Well, it <laughs> it might have been a hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, yeah. It was it was in it was in that range. I can't, you know, <laughs> it was it was it's probably hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah, gradually over. Uh, that time period, uh, we became, over the course of the next few years, we became the band to get. And we, if you wanted a great band for your fraternity party, we were the band to get. And um, it's funny, you asked about the money. I think we probably got up to, maybe by senior year, we maybe we got 300 bucks. Yeah, fraternity party, and occasionally right. more. We did occasionally get more. Yeah, the next important thing was the fact that bandmate Jim Maiella was told by his girlfriend that you are not going to be a rock and roller. You are going to drop out of this band. 
<laughs> and you know, and and he became a very successful insurance guy. So, <laughs> so maybe she was right. <laughs> yeah, he heeded her advice, I guess. Yeah, we were able. We found um, now we were. Uh, Marty Freed, who was a year behind us, but had a reputation of, hey, this guy Marty Freed is a good drummer. And he also could sing. And that was important for us because we loved doing harmony. As of, I guess it would have been my junior year, Marty Freed now became our drummer. Yeah. And it was around that time that, well, the the Beach Boys, of course, were very popular. The Beatles were coming into, you know, a, a, awareness the next significant thing that happened that led us along the road to the circle was uh, there was an event. It was twice a year. They called it Fall IF Weekend and Spring IF Weekend Interfraternity. And they uh, would have, it was sort of almost a ball, sort of, but they basically took the gym, totally decorated it. I guess you could almost say it's like a senior prom in a sense. Yeah. But they would hire a big sort of standard band, and then they would usually have a rock band. So it would like two bands, so like an orchestra and a band. The orchestra was Warren Covington leading the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were excited to hear them. That was cool. And we right. got the job as the rock band. And this would have been spring of junior year, which means, let's see, 1964 is when this would have been. Now, right. in, in 1964, for your listeners who are no dates, the Beatles were really happening. And this was a major, major thing. Yeah, by then they had appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, what, once or twice? Well, the, I, I don't remember the exact Ed Sullivan dates, but yeah, they had been on. And the Beatles were huge at this point. You know, and, and this is this is where, I, I'm, I'm still remembering this, I think there was a point at which they had the top five records on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, one, two, three, sure. four, five, you know, it was yeah. just... You know, an amazing phenomenon, and of course, all your listeners will will know that we uh, were very um, enamored of the Beatles, and we learned all of the hit songs that 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 they had at the time, and we announced, not in any official capacity, but we just made it known. We kept telling people, "Hey, at this interfraternity ball, we're going to do a Beatles show." And we bought long hair wigs, and we uh, prepared to do our Beatles show. So That's such a great idea. That's great. Yeah. And I would say this is probably, even though this is just at college, I'm going to say that that was, I mean, there's a bunch of high points in my life that I can probably point to. But this was actually a high point in our lives because it was so successful. Everybody whooped and hollered and cheered and you know, I mean, it was like we were really rock stars for a moment doing this Beatles show. Warren Covington is watching this, and he was really impressed. And he says, you know, he comes up to us and says, you know, I can't, I, I'm really impressed with how you do this. And I just wonder if there's a way that we can combine your rock and roll shows with the big band. 
And his thought was actually that we would could become part of his band, his orchestra, and then step out and do these uh, rock shows. And we thought about it. We thought, well, yeah, I mean, if you want to try, sure, we, we could try. So he set up um, a situation to uh, try it out. The first uh, tryout was he had Earl meet him. Um, he was playing uh, in Tennessee, not too far where Earl's home was, and I guess it was a, it must have been a vacation. Um, and Earl uh, played piano with the band, and Earl was a very good player, but he didn't have that classical training where, you know, um, where he could really just you know, jazz, classical, just fit right in with the band. So he had a hard time. And the funny thing, I mean, I'm still recalling what was what um, he told us. Um, Warren would say to Earl now, all right, Earl, give me an E-flat arpeggio. And for those of you non-musical, arpeggio <laughs> just means you, you, you take your hands and you go up the whole keyboard, you know, in, 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 with an E-flat chord. And Earl didn't quite know what he was even asking. So... <laughs> right. So Earl was so obviously it wasn't going to work with Earl, but we met him um, for the rest of us to try it out, and Earl was there too because it was now I think spring break, and we sat in with the band. Now my jazz background with my guitar lessons actually got me almost sort of kind of through playing with the band, and uh, Marty, one free drummer. Couldn't do it. It was just yep. d- different kind of a feel for what he, uh, you know. So he had a real drummer there, regular, well, real. No, we're both real, but uh, he had a drummer there. And Tommy, who was our bass player, um, he, and he was playing stand-up bass, which is what, and he did know that from folk days. He was a, he, he started out as a folk singing guy oh, okay. with, 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 a, with a group, and he played bass. So... He also, he was not quite cutting, playing bass. And once again, another little laugh that we all had was one of the musicians that he was standing next kind of leaned over him and says, look, if you can't get the notes, don't worry about it. Just keep thumping, you know. So just boom, 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 anything, even if it's not <laughs> the right notes. Anyway, so, um, and we did do, we did step out and do Beatles stuff and some Beach Boy stuff and, you know, perform. And this was on the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. That's where we did this. Wow, that's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we all agreed, okay, this combination just isn't going to work. And, you know, we said goodbye. And, you know, we had the great greatest respect for Warren Covington. And um, so now, here we are. It's spring break in Atlantic City. And... Tommy, Marty, and I thought, hey, why can't we, let's see if we can get a summer job while we're here, a summer band job. Now, Earl already knew that he had an internship for the summer that would have, that was way helpful to get into med school. So he was going to leave us for the summer, going to come back for the senior year, but he was going to leave us for the summer and... Tom, Marty, and I just started knocking on doors, went around to places, and we got a job at a bar in Atlantic City. It was the Alibi Bar, the Alibi, just 
uh, off the boardwalk on South Carolina Avenue. I'm sure it's not there anymore. We played as a trio for the whole summer, and we did well, had a good time. The fact that we were there at that bar at that time was, once again, another step to the circle because here we are. Now, here we go. We go back to Lafayette. We had a great senior year. For, well, it was senior for me and Earl. Tommy was like sort of in between. Marty was a junior. And we got a job again at the back at the Alibi that summer. So this would have been summer 1965. Played, I still remember this. We called ourselves vocal jocks because we did not have a day off. We played for 90 straight days from 9 to 3 wow. in wow. the morning. Plus... Two matinees, a matinee on Saturday and a matinee on Sunday. Wow, that compares. Uh, that kind of compares to the Beatles' Hamburg days in a way. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I would say an interesting thing for me as a um, as a player in a band was because you know you do it, do it, do it, do it. It's like nonstop. You're doing it. We yeah. so we got so tight as a band that. When we were playing, I could not pay any attention to playing because it was so part of me. It was just like breathing. You know, you don't think about it. You just play. And I could, like, look around and see what was going on at the bar. And, you know, it was it was just sort of fun, you know, to, you know that we were so tight like that. Now we're about to now really break up because we're all going our separate ways. You know, I had graduated, Earl had graduated, and he was definitely going off to med school. Um, Tommy had uh, like a half a year to go, and Marty had junior year to go. So uh, we uh, we broke up. I mean, we said goodbye. It was, you know, we actually um, we made some recordings of our repertoire. Like, it was... Uh, a little bit makeshift, but we had a couple of tape recorders, and we recorded band tracks and at the alibi, and then we went back to our little apartment, and we were able to overdub, and we sang that. So we actually have recordings of the rondels at the alibi. Oh, you still have those? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's cool. I have them, you know, yeah, and it's it's kind of fun to listen to. You can see, you know, you can get where we were. You know, some of them sound quite, pretty good, and some of them, you know, are a little lacking. But uh, we did a lot of Beatles, a lot of Beach Boys, very precise on our harmonies. We really made a point to do that. So when we did Beach Boys, we sounded pretty much like the Beach Boys. And when we yeah. did Beatles, all the parts were right. It was all all there. Anyway, so let's go now to Labor Day, 1965, end of summer, still at the alibi, you know, winding down, when uh, a gentleman named Nat Weiss walks into the bar, and he was there on, uh, I think it was a fraternity convention of his college fraternity. Anyway, he walks in and he hears us, and introduces himself after he hears us. Hi, my name is Nat Weiss, and I'm a matrimonial lawyer, but I am a good friend of Beatle manager Brian Epstein, and we are about to form a uh, management company here in the States. And, you know, give me a call if you're interested. You know, I think you guys are really good. 
So we took it with a grain of salt because we had been approached by various people who had no credibility whatsoever. Sure. So now, armed with Nat Weiss's business card, <laughs> we all leave, you know go our separate ways. Now, um, so what I was doing is I am now back in East Chester living with my parents and working sure. in my dad's sheet metal company. And I was working in the factory and I was waiting to get into the Coast Guard Reserve. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and that was my way of staying out of Vietnam. Right. You know, so I, I signed up for the Coast Guard Reserve. I didn't know when it was going to happen, but, you know, I'm, I'm signed up now waiting to get in. Tom and Marty, now still back at Lafayette, and we thought, well, you know what, why don't you come, you know, Lafayette was a not bad drive from East Chester. So I would go out on occasional weekends, and we would still play, we would play as a trio at uh, fraternities again. So we were still kind of together. And one night I thought, you know, I wonder if this Nat guy is for real. Why don't I give him a call? I, I say, hey, this is Don Dannemann. Remember from the Rondells at, uh, you know, the Alibi in Atlanta? Oh, yeah, Don, how are you? Yeah, good to hear you. So he really remembered. And uh, he tells me, oh, you know what? Why don't you come down? He gave me an address, and it was uh, it was an Upper East Side in Manhattan address. Well, uh, come to this address um, on such and such a day. And I'll introduce you to Brian. Well, you know, I once again, you got to be kidding me. I go, uh, I bring a friend of mine. I go down. It's a, it, it's an Upper East Side address. Um, it's a walk-up building, a small walk-up building. We walk up to the second floor, and there is a party. Now Nat is not there, and we're standing around, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of shy and not really talking to anybody, just kind of standing <laughs> around, and well, well, anyway. Finally, Nat walks in. I go up to him. Yo, Nat, yo, I'm here. What's what's going on? Oh, yeah, Don, come on. I'm going to introduce you to Brian. So he walks down the stairs. I follow him down the stairs, and there's a limo parked out on the street. I'm, I'm going to try and give you a visual now. I just want you to picture <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a gentleman graciously opening the door and beckoning me in with his hands. Now, it was, it was sort of dramatic. You know, he beckons yeah. me in. And I go in, he follows, closes the door, and I'm now sitting on a seat directly opposite Beatle manager Brian Epstein. <laughs> and by the way, it's not every manager who is as familiar as, as he was because everybody saw him all the time with the Beatles. He was, yeah, he was very well known. So I am now sitting opposite Brian Epstein. And I'm trying to maintain my cool and trying to figure out, okay, what do I say? You know, so Nat introduces me. <laughs> All right. Now, I have to give you a truth in advertising, let's call it, of this introduction. And, and that is, and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about um, after I give, when I give you the introduction, but I need to set it up. Um, I am a pretty good guitar player. And I'm a pretty good singer, and I'm a pretty good, you know, general music guy. You know, but if you want to compare me, say, to the finest of the finest, the best of the best, well, the honest truth is, I'm not. But I am very okay, good. Yeah. You know, I can, and right. when I go on stage, you'll look at me and say, yes, he's probably pretty good. But now Nat 
introduces me as follows. Brian Epstein, I'd like you to meet Don Daneman, one of the finest musicians I know. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so I had, a, I had a nice chuckle to myself as I gulped. And uh, anyway, I... Got to sh- you know, I shook his hand, and anyway, we had a bit of an exchange, you know, as you know, it was along the lines of now, Brian. Um, yeah, you know, um, it was such a thrill to meet Nat and hear that you guys are forming a company, and you know, if we can something going, that would be great. And you know, we're certainly huge Beatles fans. Um, and he, Brian, was very gentlemanly. I, anyway, and he was very—he's a very nice, gentlemanly guy, and he was very cordial. And he did, you know, say along the lines of, well, yes, we, uh, you know, we are forming this management company and Nat has spoken very highly of you and perhaps uh, we can uh, get something happening. It was a fairly short exchange. And then in the same glorious beckoning way that I just described him beckoning me in, Nat now opens the door and very dramatically with the hand gesture beckons me out. <laughs> You said, no, I'm never leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went out. I I just, you know, I calmly walked out, and that closes the door. So I want you to picture a videotape. The camera is right behind me, and it's shooting kind of up the street. And so you see me kind of silhouetted. (laughs) And here's the limo, and it slowly pulls off down. This is a New York side street, so it goes off into the lights a little bit further, a little bit further, disappears and fade to black. End of video. And that's right. You know, so that's my uh that's my meeting with Brian. <laughs> okay, was... so at, so at this point, after your head explodes from this mm-hmm. uh massive moment, mm-hmm. do you think it we've really got to get some material together to to show this guy and maybe get something going here? Yes. So now, of course, I just met Brian Epstein, and we—I I can't just let this go. So I call the guys. Uh, I call Tommy and Marty uh, back at Lafayette, and I tell them, you know, what happened. So what we did is um, we set up a makeshift recording studio with our just our personal equipment. I had a a stereo tape recorder. Tommy had a stereo tape recorder and the microphones that we uh, used, you know, for our shows and amps. We set up a, a, a studio in my basement in Eastchester. Yeah. And we recorded several demos. So now we had them recorded and they were, like I say, it was makeshift, but they were pretty good. I mean, they were, you know, they were pretty good. And I called, now armed with these demos, and this is back in, you know, quarter-inch tape days. Sure. On on tape, there's no yep. digital, there's no nothing like that. Yep, I know it well. Okay, so armed with these demos, um, I called Nat, and we, he gave me a time to come down to his apartment in the city and play him. The funny thing about that is having nothing to do with the circle or the rondelles or demos or anything, but the night that I had the appointment with Nat, and some of your listeners may remember this, um, 
I'm not sure of the date, but I think it was November 11th, 1965. It was definitely the fall of 1965, and some of your listeners may remember the big blackout of that oh, yeah. time. The whole East Coast was blacked out. Right. It was like 50 million people were blacked out, and they thought the Russians were invading. There was all sorts of going on. Yeah. And that was the night now that I had the appointment to go to Nats. So, obviously, I didn't go. But we, we, we reset it up for the following week, and I went. And so I now I go to Nats' apartment, and I am armed with my tape recorder, which, of course, you have to lug. It's a, you know, it's a heavy machine. Right. And um, I brought wires to be able to hook it up to his stereo. And I brought a pair of stereo headphones. So I'm now, I'm about to, you know, wire it up to his his uh, tape recorder, which was a KLH. In, once again, if people want to be nostalgic and try to remember of the time period, he had a KLH self-contained unit that had a turntable as part of it. Wow, fancy. Yeah, yeah. And KLH speakers, which at the time were quite good, and the turntable was by the couch, and on the other side of the room, wired nicely, invisible, the speakers were behind curtains. And I'm about to wire it up to the the KLH. I thought to myself, you know, and I said to Nat, you know, Nat, um, you know, you'll actually hear these better if you put on these stereo headphones. Now, at the time, stereo headphones were comparatively new, and very few people had actually heard stereo headphones. Yeah. Of course, as you know, obviously, this is so common today, but at the time, they were new. And I still remember when I first heard stereo headphones, it was really kind of mind-blowing to put it on, and you know, the music is coming right into your ears. It was really an experience. Now, Nat had not heard stereo headphones and they looked and, uh they looked kind of clunky, didn't they? I mean, they were like basically right out of the Cold War era. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, big yeah. clunky stereo headphones. I, all I had to do was plug it into my tape recorder, which had out, outlets for that, and um I click play and the first thing comes on and I saw Nat's eyes like cuz he's he's waiting to hear and his eyes kind of went up to the ceiling as in I'm in heaven, kind of. It was, you know, like I I knew that I I got him, you know. Yeah. Like I knew he was, he, you know. So anyway, he listened to the couple of demos, and um, that he, he indicated he was really impressed. So uh, the next thing that happened was he got us a few jobs in the city at clubs, and. So we came in, and this was still, it was just Tom and Marty and I, and we we played a a few clubs. The most successful of those clubs would have been, uh, it was a club called The Downtown in the village, and my recollection, it was one Sheridan Square for you Manhattanites who may be listening right. to this, even if you're on the West Coast. A lot, a lot of transplants out oh, here yes, in Las I'm Vegas. Sure, yeah, I'm sure you got a lot of New Yorkers probably listening. And we played there for a week. And we did really well. And at that time, and that also, he got us some auditions for at record companies. And 
uh, we played. Uh, I still, I sort of remember playing for RCA Records and failing. Um, yeah. But it was that. But right around that time, now we signed a management contract with Beatle manager Brian Epstein and Nat. And uh, if you look online there, I think there are pictures that you'll see of us signing. Yeah, I've seen it at the big long table, and you guys are all sitting there. It's great. Yeah, yeah, with Nat, Brian. Um, and us, and then there's a, there's um, another one I think um, with all of us with our who, the the fellow who became our producer at Columbia Records when we got the Columbia record contract, and that was John Simon. The 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 association with Brian uh, Epstein definitely got some notoriety and, and created interest, and John Simon. Uh, now, were you, were you guys the first uh, band in the United States to get signed by Brian's uh, management company? First and only. First and only, yeah. Yeah. Now, Brian had uh, several acts, but they were all Brit- British except right. for us. And sometimes when we are introduced as the introduction to the circle, um, the MC would will bring up, ladies and gentlemen, the following act was managed by Beatle manager Brian Epstein and was the only American group to to achieve that that status. Amazing. And that gets an applause, you know, that's always yeah. it, was, it was a very cool thing to be the only group managed by Brian Epstein, yeah. So John Simon, a young producer at Columbia Records, took an interest in us and we signed Columbia Records to Columbia Records. So we now had a uh, management contract with Brian Epstein and Nat, and a Columbia record contract with John Simon as our producer. And by the way, Don, what do your what do your parents think of all the stuff that's going on at this point? I think they're sort of dumbfounded at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, because I was I don't remember at which point I stopped working in the sheet metal factory. But there was definitely um, overlap, you know, of the band starting to do this stuff and me working yeah. at, at the sheet metal factory. Um, and I had always planned to go into my dad's business, actually. Uh, right. It was it was a good business. And um, if you look at the liner notes on the Red Rubber Ball album, they John Simon, who wrote the notes, he refers to me as the sheet metal prince. <laughs> yeah. So there you have that. So now we're looking. There were two things that had to happen. Now, one is we um, we were going to start recording, and we needed to have material to record. Yeah. And we also needed a name. So we all agreed the Rondells was not appropriate for a mid '60s group. And I actually say this on stage. And, and oh, and actually, this will give me my Brian Epstein imitation because this is that story. I now I'd like to take you into the recording studio. Here we are in the early days of the band, and we had just signed our contract with Brian Epstein, and we had just signed our Columbia record contract, and we're now in the studio recording. But we were still the Rondells from Lafayette College, and we needed a name. And we all agreed we needed a new name. So in the studio one day, and Brian was in town, and he comes up to me, and uh, he says, Oh, Don, take a look at this. 
uh, in my be- in trying to you know do do a British accent, and just once again, Brian Epstein was a real gentleman, and I'm trying to be a gentlemanly British <laughs> accent here. And he hands me what looks like a business card, and I look at it, and I see it says Brian Epstein on the card, and it's kind of a standard business card. Oh no, Don, turn it over. Okay, I turn the card over, and. I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to read what it says. It's hand, it's scribbled handwriting. It's like, Ker, Sir, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Brian, what am I reading? I don't quite understand. <laughs> oh, Don, this is your new name. And it's the circle, and please notice the funny spelling, C-Y-R-K-L-E. And, you know, when I was back in Britain, I asked the boys, I'm saying that in quotes, the boys. Of course. And they were, the, the Beatles were referred to as the boys whenever they talked about them. It's the boys. I asked the boys, you know, you know we have a new American group, and uh, we need a new name. Anybody have any ideas? And sure enough, it was John that came up with the name The Circle, and as you can imagine with John's interesting mind, he came up with the funny spelling. And so here is your new name. You know, and, and it always it always reminded me of the birds you know, whenever I saw that Y in there. Uh, yeah. And that I always yeah. thought it was kind of a, maybe a little bit of a takeoff on that. Well, I'm not sure where John got it, but I usually finish up the story saying, well, so... Um, I, I have a couple of things I have to tell you about what I just told you. And the first thing is, and I do this very like, John Lennon gave us our name. And I do this with big hand gestures. And, you know, everybody it usually brings a big applause. Every, we get a kick out of it. The second thing that I'm going to tell you is me, the memorabilia nut, failing in all aspects of memorabilia. That card went in the trash the next day. And I wish <laughs> I still had it. <laughs> of course it did, yeah. Well, I can tell you that the last when we had the the last plane ride on the Beatles tour, right? When, um, and for your listeners, you know, many of you may know this, but in, for those who don't, we we got to do the the whole Beatles tour in the summer of '66. Yeah. And the last plane ride from uh San Francisco Candlestick Park the last yeah. plane ride was back to LA and that's where everybody was getting left off and so um everybody and when i say everybody everybody was taking pictures with the beatles and they were very nice about it they would you know they were posing and it was all nice everybody except us and the reason <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> and and the reason we didn't was because we just felt like we didn't want to put ourselves in their mind of being like silly fans. You know, we wanted to be a real serious band and we didn't want to take advantage of of that. And so I, I totally get that. I really do. Yeah. By the way, not to jump ahead as you uh, uh, talk about the end of that tour, but did you have a sense at that point that that was the end of their touring days? Did they discuss that at all with you guys? Because I know that they were they had had it at that point. George actually mentioned it. Um, yeah, yeah, he was uh, uh, at the Candlestick Park concert. He was taking pictures, 
And he, I mean, he didn't come out and say, we're never playing again. It wasn't like that. But he kind of casually, you know, maybe this is, you know, the last time we're going to play. You know, maybe we're getting tired of doing this, and I'd like to have some memories. Uh, so, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, we had a sense that maybe that was the case. Obviously, you would eventually get some great material. How was it that, uh, was it kind of a, you know, just a luck of the situation that you would find the song Red Rubber Ball, which was written by Paul Simon? Uh, that happened uh, at the time that we now were looking for material to record. Yeah. Uh, bandmate Tommy got friendly with a fellow named Barry Kornfeld who yeah. had a publishing company with Paul Simon. And we heard, and, and Tommy uh, heard it, uh, and, and he brought it to us. So we heard it as a, um, as a demo 45 uh, recording. It was on a 45 record. We heard it with just Paul singing with a guitar. And everybody thought, you know, this is a cute song. Let's Let's give it a try. And if I can, I'd like to comment on, th this now skips way ahead, but um, but let me start out. My feeling about Red Rubble initially was, yeah, cute song. Uh, we recorded it, and it got to be a huge hit. Yeah. And But my feeling always was it was a cute song. What I have found now that the circle is in this revival mode, where you know right. the band is, you know, where we we revived the band and um, it, it, the original members. It's I, I'm the original, and then we have Mike Loskamp, who is our keyboard player from 1966. So there are two of us. Um, and when we play now, and we do meet and greet. You know, we always meet and greet people afterwards, people who want to come up and say hi, take pictures, you know, get autographs, whatever. We're very happy to do that. And I have learned that Red Rubber Ball was way more than a cute song, but a song that actually had a lot of meaning to a lot of people. And as an ex and I'll I'll give you just a couple of examples and I I love if I get a chance in shows to talk about it and say it but um uh and I'm happy to talk about it and say it and that is it it and it runs a pretty good range from people coming up and say you know Red Rubber Ball was my first 45 and I'm so happy to have you guys back and playing and it's so great to hear it right well, that's a pretty reasonable, obvious one. Uh, another one I got a real kick out of was a, a gentleman came up to me after a show, and he shook my hands, and he said, thank you. And uh, I said, you're welcome. Why are you thanking me? He said, I just want you to know that Red Rubber Ball got me through my divorce. I, oh, you know, it just, it was so uplifting. And, you know, I think it's going to be all right. The morning sun is shining like a red rubber ball. It just made me feel good and it got me through my divorce. Thank you. So that's another one. But the a, a real poignant one for me was uh, a gentleman came up after the show and he had a veteran's cap on. And uh, he he says to me, you know, I want you to know, 
we had uh, a little battery-operated tape recorder in NAM. And I can't tell you how many battles Red Rubber Ball got us through. And wow. we both teared up and we hugged, you know, and... You know, and it really was, it was mind-blowing for me to realize, and just as an example of these three that I gave you, that Red Rubber Ball turns out to be, it's, I, I can't, it, the words are a little hard to come by, but I'm going to call it a, a, a real uplifting anthem that made thousands and thousands and thousands of people feel good. Yeah, and, I mean, to, to me, as I recall as a kid, I mean, it was it was a very hopeful type of a song. The other thing that I know now, listening to it, like you say, with headphones and things, is that it was really well produced. You it guys was. Were take, you were taken care of in the studio, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, we were, and I would like to, I'll, I'll toot our own horn. I mean, we certainly contributed, and but yeah, we were taken care of. It was a... Uh, it was a really well done record on all levels. It just, you know, and when I hear it today, um, I marvel at, uh, you know, all the, the little parts of it that just work together to become a hit record. And actually, um, if you let me, I will, I'll give you an experience that I had about listening to Red Rubber Ball. And this was probably somewhere in the mid-80s. Um, when the group broke up in 1968, I got into doing commercials. And when yeah. the, and, and I just left the record thing behind. You know, just been there, done that, moving on. So I hadn't even thought about it, really, for a, a long time. And uh, a little record company, Sundazed is the name, got the license to release that they do oldie stuff and they got the license to release circle stuff and they sent me uh i guess at that time it would have been a cassette of sure. a, with a copy of all our stuff that they were releasing and they asked me to listen listen to it and comment and I really didn't for a while and then finally I'm sitting on a plane by myself I was going uh, somewhere, and I had a little Walkman. Ha ha! Remember that? Of course. Uh, I had a little Walkman. I had the cassette, and I said, "All right, I'm going to listen to this." So I so I put my head down. I put the headphones on, and Red Rubber Ball comes on. It was the first thing on there, and I actually had an epiphany. Now this was an epiphany just on the quality and sound of the record. Not the same epiphany that I had with the people meeting me and telling them the meaning later on, but just at that point, the sound of the record. Right? And it comes on, and there are two major elements of the beginning, and uh, there's the organ. Very recognizable. And then there's the, the lead guitar part, that goes so wonderfully with the organ. So, and and those two things go together. Well, of course, drum and bass and, and rhythm guitars. And it's so recognizable 
and it just flows so wonderfully into the vocal. And it was myself, uh, I'm singing the lead, and then Tommy singing the harmony. Um, and uh, Tommy does, he, he uh, sadly has passed on. But we, and we're doing this, and it's with no auto-tune or anything like that. We were just so right on with each other. And it just, everything about it just clicked. And I said to myself, wow, that sounds really good. And I now see yeah. why it was such a big hit record. So uh, anyway, so that was my experience. And um, and then I listened to, you know, listening to the rest, I, I, I also, I had a, a realization that Red Rubber Ball had magic. Turn Down Day also had magic. Yeah. When you continue down, because we continued recording for a while, and we did put out, we had actually six top 100 uh, records. But what I got was that even though we got more professional and better in the studio and more knowledgeable and all of that, the subsequent records didn't quite have the magic that Red Rubber Ball and Turn Down Day had. And it made me realize that you can take the best singers, the best writers, the best musicians, the best recording studio, the best arrangers, the best PR, the best everything, and you can guarantee a great record. But what you can never, ever guarantee is the magic that takes a great record from just being a great record to a hit. And Red Rubber Ball had it, and... Uh, that it was that was also a, it was like a learning experience for me. By the way, wasn't there another song Paul Simon offered up to you guys and you didn't take it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do that. That that is a regular part of our show because it, it's so meaningful. And uh, yeah. I won't go into quite exactly how we do it in the show, but the gist is we went into the studio uh, one day, and this is down the road a little bit, and and Simon and Garfunkel are just finishing up. And um, we're coming in, and everybody knows everybody. We all shake hands, and he comes up to me. He says, "Hey, Paul, uh, Don. Uh, excuse me." He comes up to me and he says, "Hey, hey, Don. There's a record. There's a song that we're recording for this album that we're working on, and I think it's so perfect for you guys. And if you want to do it, you can do it and get it out as fast as you can, and it'll be like your song, you know, because the album's not coming out for a while." Okay, let's hear it. Engineer hit the button. Everybody bops around the studio, and you know it's it sounds great. It really sounds like a hit. And the song ends, and then we all we look at each other, and the biggest brain freeze of twentieth century comes <laughs> into play when we we sort of thought as you know we're looking at each other, and it's like well. You know, yeah, it's really good, but not now. I mean, this might be good for down the road a little bit. So we didn't yeah. do it. And anyway, and then what I do in the show is I, I relate that story. And then what I'll say to the audience is, well, so we didn't do it. And um, I'm going to let you decide if it was a mistake or not. But had we done it, would have sounded like this, and we go right into feeling groovy. <laughs> and I can't tell you the audience reaction to that is like <gasps> you can really you can hear an audible. <gasps> yeah, I mean, not only did uh, Simon and Garfunkel have a hit with it, but didn't Harper's Bazaar 
have a hit with that song? I don't think Simon and Garfunkel did have a hit with it. It was actually Harper's Bazaar that had Harper's the hit. Harper's Bazaar did, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. By the way, so you're starting to get then at this point national attention. And I recall seeing you guys on Hollywood Palace and Hullabaloo. That mm-hmm. must have been very exciting for you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hullabaloo, they uh, – now, here, Red Rubber Ball is just kind of – was recently recorded, and uh, I don't – I'm not clear on the exact release date and where right. – um, what's happening. But basically, Red Rubber Ball is starting to happen, and um, I get a call. I am now in Coast Guard boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey, and Nat Weiss gave me a call. And I guess we did have access to phones a little bit. Nasweis, you know, he says, "Hey, we have a chance to be on Hullabaloo." Yeah. And uh, you know, do you think you can get maybe a pass? So anyway, I begged and I pleaded, and sure enough, they were. The, I want to thank you, Coast Guard. These were really nice people. They yeah. gave me a. They gave me a three-day pass, and I took the bus from Cape May up to. Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> where where they they were uh, taping Hullabaloo, and uh, we got to perform it. And if you go online and look for Red Rubber Ball the Circle, you'll see Tom, Marty, and I sitting, you know, in a little, you know, they they had a set for us, and we right. where we do Red Rubber Ball, and that was a it was a thrill. We played with uh, let me think, Paul Anka. Was the host, so we got to meet cool people. You know that was really neat. Sure. Um, Paul Anka was the host. Uh, Leslie Gore was a guest. Oh, nice. And Peter and Gordon. Yeah. And we have met Peter. Now Gordon has passed on, but Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, um, we have met him several times in our current revival where. Um, he has been, and it was nice to meet him again in exchange. Like, hey, Rao, remember we did that together? And, yeah. And it turns out that Peter Asher, I didn't know this, but was a really close friend of Nat Weiss, of our, you know, our, Nat, of Brian's partner, Nat Weiss, who was our co-manager. Peter was a really good friend of his, and he says, you know, and Nat passed on a few years ago. Not sure. I don't. Not not sure of the date, but Peter says, "But I really miss him to this day." Yeah. They yeah. Were, they were very close. So it, you know, as far as going on Hullabaloo, I mean, this was uh, this was a big moment because, like you say, you had the the pass, and so you were able to. What did they recorded the show? It wasn't on live, right? No, it was not live. Yeah, it was it yeah. was taped. Yeah, and it was an interesting experience because the show was scheduled to air the following week. So here I am back in Coast Guard boot camp, back in Cape May, um, and I went very quickly from, you know, would-be rock star back to boot camp, and we are now sitting in the dining room, and the whole uh, base is pretty much there because they all know that, hey, Don Danneman, you know, a boot camp guy, um, is going to be on TV. And I'm sitting there, and everybody, you know, and I am praying, please, <laughs> please, don't let them have cut us, you know. Don't, yes. Please come on. <laughs> anyway, so I, 
I still remember the surreal experience of seeing myself, and it was in black and white, by the way. Um, <laughs> at least the TV set that we had there was in, it was a little yeah. TV set in black and white. I remember seeing myself and the whole dining room just cheering like, oh, yeah, wow, cool, well, yeah, there he is, great. You know, so it was very cool. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really neat experience. And I think, you know, just the way um, I, I've described several experiences that I've had that are really like major in my life experiences, that was probably one of them. You know, and just I'm, sitting there watching myself and being cheered on by the whole boot camp. It was great. And I recall you having the military haircut, too, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that's why the haircut was like that, yeah. So when did you find out uh, from uh, Brian and company that you would be on the tour, the final tour with the Beatles? Um, it was during – I got out of boot camp – and I got stationed, once again, thank you Coast Guard, because I, I really, I begged and pleaded for this, and they let me do it. They stationed me on a buoy tender in Staten Island, which got me back to New York. So, uh, and it, it allowed me, and it was it was right next to the Staten Island Ferry, so I could get, I could, when I was off duty, I could just walk across, get on the ferry, be in Manhattan, and we spent a, a good part of that time recording. So I would have lots of, of uh, no-sleep nights going into Manhattan recording and coming back and washing pots and pans as a mess cook the next day. It was an interesting dichotomy <laughs> of experiences. Right. <laughs> so um, anyway... Uh, we heard that, okay, we have an opportunity to be on the Beatles tour. Now, this, now I'm going to refer you to, this is my take on it. I'm going to refer you to Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes of Fame. That Right. He says, now everybody's entitled to 15 Minutes of Fame. So, and when you're in the 15 Minutes of Fame, everything goes right. Because you're in that 15 Minutes of Fame, it all works. It's really great. When we got word that we were going to be on the Beatles tour, uh, my active duty, it was a six-month active duty, you know, reserve, uh, and then you're in the reserve for another six years or something like that. But the active duty is was six months. I was going to miss the tour because six months took me uh, beyond the tour. And they were actually looking to replace me, like, you know, I mean, we don't want to not oh, do man. the tour, so let's replace Don. <laughs> I wouldn't have blamed them. Anyway, the uh, the mighty United States government, realizing that Don was in his 15 minutes of fame, decided that we have to make this happen for Don. And so what they, what the United States government did is they changed the reserve requirements from six months to five months active duty, and I got out in time to do the Beatles tour. That and is I, amazing. I, I and I mean it's just so amazing that 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 was just that happened. So I got out, and that was just an example of how when you're in the 15 minutes of fame, it's like everything works. All the pieces fell together, didn't they? Yeah. They all just came together. I got out, and uh, I don't remember the exact 
time of it, but I got out and probably had a little time, and then off we went on the tour. Yeah, very, very cool. Was that when you met the the boys? Or was it on the airplane? Was that the first time you met? Uh, the first meeting, uh, we met uh, Paul. On the th- that was the first meeting. We're we're on the plane, and um, we hadn't met him. We hadn't seen. Um, there was there's no show yet. The first show was in Chicago, and we flew from New York to Chicago, and the whole tour was on the plane. And we um, we wanted to meet him as much as anybody else did. We're you know big fans. Yeah. So you know, so I mean, it was uh, you know the Ronettes, uh, uh, Bobby Hebb, Sonny. Thank you for nice. yeah. yeah, he was there. And the Remains, they didn't have a hit, but they were a big uh, band, nice guys out of Boston. Uh, and all the press and roadies and all that kind of stuff. So. All these people were there. The Beatles were behind a wall in the back. And uh, we, we're looking, we're looking, we're looking, are we going to meet them? And I do this in the show. Um, and finally, the door opens. And I, I give this nice hesitation, which, of course, on radio, it's not going to translate. <laughs> but, I, but I hesitate, and I throw my arms out. And there's Paul. The door, you know, yeah. door opens, and and there's Paul. And uh, so he works his way up. He's a, he looks like a really jovial guy, and he and he uh, um, he finally gets to us. Now Nat, through Brian, knows him. Nat Weiss knows him through Beatle manager Brian Epstein, his partnership. He knows them, so he introduces us. And I'm sitting next to bandmate Tommy Dawes, Don Daneman. Uh, of the circle, meet Paul McCartney. Oh, hi, great to meet you, blah, blah, couple of words. Tommy Dawes, meet Paul McCartney. Also, blah, 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 couple of words. And off he goes, back, disappears behind the wall. And then we spent the rest of the flight analyzing every little word that we said, like, why couldn't we have been cooler, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Make him stay a little bit, like you know, right. that sort of thing. But that was that was actually the first the first meeting of any of them was in that in the plane. So, you know, we hear all these stories, Don, through the years of uh, different uh, combinations of opening acts. And uh, like one comes to mind for me, Jimi Hendrix opening for the Monkees. How difficult, oh. was, how difficult was, and by the way, Hendrix getting booed off the stage because all the girls wanted to see the Monkees. How wow. difficult was it for you guys to, to open for the Beatles? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of uh, little ditties about that. The first one is that that was in Chicago. That was the first concert. And we were very nervous about opening for the Beatles. And we were very pleasantly surprised that when we went on, and we played for, I think it was about 20 minutes, we went on to a very enthusiastic audience. So bottom line is it was great. We did well. Nice. Yeah, yeah, we we did well. It was a yeah. The audience was really on board, and for everybody, you know, the audience was very enthusiastic. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was good. Now, here is the big rub in St. Louis. This was somewhere in the middle of the tour. We were playing in St. Louis, and it was threatening rain. We're about to go on, and this is an outdoor stadium. 
yeah. we're about we're about to go on. Uh, all of a sudden, they stop us, say, "No, guys, you can't go on. Um, looks like it's going to rain, and we got to get the Beatles on." And of course, that was a bummer for us, but we understood. Of course, you have to get the Beatles on. Yeah. So the Beatles went on, and they finish. It's not raining yet. <laughs> so guess guess what happens? <laughs> so it's not raining, and uh, they tell us, "Okay, guys, you got to go on. You got to be kidding. You're really going to make us go on." Follow the Beatles. Well, well, so the Beatles <laughs> opened for us that day. Anyway, so 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 we went on. It was an interesting, you know, what I what what my observation as we went on is that you could certainly see people filing out, people were filing out. But I would say if this were 60,000 in this stadium, I'm going to say that we played to a good third of that audience who did not leave. And right. Cheered and stayed and, you know, you know, so it was pretty successful. So if you think about it, I never quite thought of it quite this way, but our current bandmate, Pat McLaughlin, he he um, says, you know, his analogy is kind of, you know, do you realize that the circle on their own played for 20,000 people that day? And I go, wow, yeah, I guess. That's, yeah, that's really and you know, cool. in some ways you were probably heard better than when the Beatles were on stage with, that huge crowd, and you're you were basically playing through stadium speakers back then, weren't you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was stadium speakers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but well, so when that tour ends, I mean, what is the next step for you guys? Because you must have been feeling pretty, pretty uh, proud and puffed up and ready to kind of take this to the next level. Well, the the first job we had when that was over. My, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna say that this was the beginning of the end of those uh, Andy Warhol 15 minutes. Yeah. The first job we had, I still remember. I believe it was Mansfield, Ohio, and it was a club, and I think we played for 30 people. Man. Literally, it was a real downer. Now, of course, we did have successful shows after that, you know, but that one particular one was like a real slap in the, like back to reality, you know, like, you know, the Beatles are gone and we're, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's how we played. That's what we did. So, um, but, but to kind of, uh, I'm going to sort of finish up on the old circle and then let me give you a little bit of the new circle. Yeah, uh, you know, before we end up. So, basically, it's as I said, Red Rubber Ball Magic, Turn Down Day Magic, future recordings, good recordings. And if you listen to them now, that you know, we st- we still get some requests occasionally for some of the other recordings. And um, but the magic kind of it didn't quite have that magic, and we gradually it gradually just sort of slowed down to the point where in 1968 we broke up. Yeah. Basically, and um, two of us, uh, bandmate Tommy Dawes and myself, we each separately started music production companies, and uh, we started doing jingles 
and underscores and audio work for advertising agencies. And we both had really nice careers doing commercials. And part of our show, we kind of, we, we bring, you know, we, we play some of the commercials, you know, that, and it's really fun. We get a great uh, we get a great feeling about, uh, you know, the people, you know, do you recognize some of these? And the people usually do. So, and that's a great part of the show when we do the the commercial segment. What are a couple of the ones that you may have been involved with? Well, I can, uh, hold on. I actually have that list right here because I'm in my studio and I always I refer to it. Um, so, now just to be clear, I didn't write everything that I'm going to play you. Some of the stuff I wrote... Some of the stuff I was involved in the recordings of, some of the stuff arranged, and you know, it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag of stuff. But everything on here, I was directly involved in something. So, and and this is this is the show, okay? So the first one, it's a commercial called Great Shakes, and many bands of the uh, '60s did a commercial for Great Shakes. That was a typical thing that they had. Known bands do great shakes, and it went, any place can be a soda fountain now with great shakes, new great shakes. You remember that? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the circle was asked to record a great shakes commercial, and that kind of got the thought process going. Uh, so um, anyway, then uh, Tommy, who started his commercial production company first, he, he kind of led the way. He got to do a, he got to write a seven up commercial and we the group recorded it. And that went seven up, seven up, seven up, the Uncola, seven up, the Uncola. Oh, very nice. Does that ring a bell? Is that Oh sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay, then then I got to do this was this was me and my uh my partner, uh having nothing to do with the circle, my partner, but we got to do a Swanson uh, dinner commercial that it probably ran for nine or ten years, actually. And and maybe you remember this. It's the next best thing to your good cooking. Swanson makes it good. Wow. It's the next best thing to your good cooking. Swanson makes it good. That's oh, you that. Guys were, you guys were real madmen, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, no, we, I mean, I actually loved doing commercials. It was yeah. very cool. Anyway, and then the next one, and we do this. We perform this, by the way. So it's it's, it's really cool. It's fun sure. to perform it, you know, have the band perform it. Anyway, next, um, uh, we're going to move our tail for you to make your every wish come true. On Continental Airlines, we really move our tail for you. That's great. Every one of them is very recognizable, whether the yeah. company is still around or not. Yeah, yeah. So then we have, let's see, who can you count on for better insurance? Who can you call nationwide? Who can you count on for blanket protection? And know that you'll find peace of mind. Nationwide <laughs> is on your side. Nationwide is on your side. By, by the way, you guys are out doing dates again here and there. Uh, yes. Any ch any chance you'd be heading out to Las Vegas? You ever been out this way? Um, we hope so. I was going to say I'm just thinking that you know those happy together tours or the flower power type uh, things where you'd be out with a few different bands. That'd be perfect for, for Las Vegas. Well, your your story is just so much fun. I mean, I love how one thing leads to another in your life and. 
and uh, just so many great experiences. And and I appreciate you sharing all of those with me, Don. And and I know that people want to find out more. They can always go to what is it, thecircle.com. Yeah, thecircle.com, and that's T H E C Y R K L E. Remember the spelling. So yeah. nice of you to uh, spend so much time. You're very generous with your time, and and it was great to hear all these stories. Well, I hope you get good use out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really love talking about it. I know that uh, when we perform, one of the comments that we get is, you guys really look like you're having a good time when yeah. you play. And the truth is, you know, of course, are we working and playing? Yeah, of course we are. But we actually really are having a good time. And I'm going to say the same thing about talking to you, Jim, is that if it sounds like I'm having a good time relating this stuff, yes, I am, because it, it just takes me back, you know. Like it's, it's, a, it's very cool to be at my age right now. I'm 76, and I'm still rocking and rolling. I'm in pretty good health, and I get up on stage, and I can do it, and it's a great honor to be able to do it. Well, it was just as much fun for me to hear those stories as a, as a fan of the band all those years ago, and uh, I do appreciate it. I hope that you guys make it out this way sometime, and I'll make sure that I come up to you and, and say hi. Oh, absolutely. If we ever get to Vegas, you know, you don't, you dare not say hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. John, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for, uh, you know, the interest in the band, and I hope we do get to meet. Take care, Jim. You talk about right place at the right time when they met lawyer Nat Weiss, who would eventually introduce them to Brian Epstein, and the funny story about turning down Paul Simon's song, feeling groovy. I also thought it was funny that when Don went to that party to meet Brian Epstein, he talked about how shy he was. I can't imagine that. By the way, Simon and Garfunkel talked about the song Red Rubber Ball one time in concert, and I leave you with their interpretation of that. I imagine most of you know that, that these are all Paul Simon songs that we're singing. There is, um, amongst the 23 or 24 songs that Paul has written, there's one that we have never recorded. It's about the only one. And a group called The Circle uh, beat us to it, recorded it, and sold 890,000 copies of it. <laughs> called Red Rubber Ball. I should have known you'd bid me farewell. There's a lesson to be learned from this, and I learned it very well. Now I know you're not the only starfish in the sea. If I never hear your name again, it's all the same to me. And I think it's gonna be alright. Yeah, the worst is over now. The morning sun is shining, and I hear it Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.